Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. And Associate Editor Drew Taylor. I'm so happy to be here again. Yes. I, love, I love getting the call. Come on the podcast. I say, I'm there. I'm there. So We I'm got excited. Drew on today because he just posted an article about ranking all the movies that are based on Disney theme parks rides. Uh, if you follow the site, you follow Drew, you know that he is a Disney expert. So you're not just going to get like a ranking. You're going to get sort of a little background on these theme park rides. And what's fascinating to me about this article, and uh, before we get too much into that, the full episode, we're going to be talking about DC Fandom. Uh, that's going to be the, the main topic. But before we get to that, we wanted to talk about this article with Drew. Uh, the main thing that fascinates me is that, like, you would think that theme park rides would not lend themselves to stories because where's the story in a theme park ride? And yet you've gotten some some all right films out of it. I mean, obviously, Pirates is the big success story, but I was surprised that there are like eight films that are based off theme park rides. And we've got another one coming out next year with Jungle Cruise. Yeah. And there's so many more in development, as I say in the intro, like. There are just a lot of projects in the hopper, but, you know, I think the Imagineers would say, like, every ride is about story, even though that's not entirely true. I think the, the reason why the Pirates movies work is that there is so many, there are so many, like, individual scenes you can kind of pluck out of that ride. It's sort of a meandering kind of journey. Um, and, yeah, I would I would love to see what some of these other concepts are. I know that the, the Space Mountain... <laughs> Uh, movie written by everybody's favorite Max Landis uh, involved space travel where the cost of of traveling in hyperspace was that you lost 10 pounds and the 10 pounds were your soul. So you would get out of the rocket ship on the other side, <laughs> a cr some kind of crazy creature. So I can understand why that one maybe didn't go forward, but, uh, you know, Matt is looking pained right now. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a Mac Lewis movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very high concept, but uh, yeah, it's 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 been an interesting sort of like journey that these movies have had, and there hasn't been one for a little while outside of the pirates. So I'm I'm excited about Jungle Cruise next year. The one that always kind of frustrates me in terms of like what it is and what it could be is Haunted Mansion because that's right. like one of my that's one of my favorite rides when I go to to Disney World. And it's it has so much personality to it. It's so yeah. perfectly macabre, but still appropriate for children. Like you would never right. like be like, oh, how could you ever bring a child onto like the haunted mansion? It's like, no, it's for kids. Like it's okay to bring a kid on a haunted mansion, but yeah. like it's still kind of spooky and like kind of weird and scary. And like I was so there was that that brief glimmer when it was like, oh, Guillermo del Toro wants to make haunted mansion movie that's not what we got which was the eddie murphy film that's just sort of like it doesn't it doesn't work as well as what you you'd want it to be right yeah i mean that every time i interview guillermo i have to bring up haunted mansion obviously and um he seems pretty disinterested with it right now but yeah there was that time when like ryan gosling was attached and they had that great photo of the, them together at disneyland and it was like oh it's gonna happen um 
but yeah, I, I don't know why that hasn't ever gotten through the like production pipeline. But you're right. I mean, it's it's an amazing mixture of comedy and horror, partially because the two Imagineers that worked on that ride, Exitensio and Mark Davis, sort of had different styles. And one was kind of pushing for the dark and the other one was pushing for the kind of lighthearted. And that's why there's almost a division, too, when you're riding the ride where it goes from scary to funny. Um but yeah, and that's in the Imagineering story. You can see that pretty clearly, right? Oh yeah, like for sure. Those. That's yeah. A, yeah. The Imagineering story is a great place to see that. Um, there's a great two-volume Mark Davis uh, book that just came out that Pete Doctor co-wrote, where you get to see even cooler gags for the mansion that didn't make it in, like a ghost building his own coffin and stuff like that. I mean, the, the possibilities are literally endless. And they were even going to do a, a TV special a couple of years ago, and it never happened. And I, I don't really know why. Uh, it just celebrated its 50th anniversary last year nobody does synergy better than disney but it for some reason it's just been kind of left alone yeah and that's you know i i kind of get you know now that we have jungle cruise coming up i hadn't i hadn't like been on jungle cruise until like a few years ago maybe i went on it when I was a kid but i don't really remember and like you go on jungle cruise and jungle cruise is just kind of like a barrage of like dad jokes and it's awesome <laughs> but like it makes a lot of sense like oh I, yeah you could make this into a movie because it's like it's comedy but it's like it's technically like it's in adventure land right. and and like i get it like i get that sort of combination and then there are others where you're like well how would this work like Let's let's talk a little bit about Tomorrowland because Tomorrowland <laughs> to me seems too broad. Like Tomorrowland is sort of like the the ambition of the future, but like I, I sort of get the idea of Tomorrowland, but then when like you boil it down to like its story beats, it stops. It doesn't really cohere for me, even though I know it was like it was on it was high on your list. It was high on my list because I feel like it embodies the spirit of Tomorrowland in a really great way. But yeah, I mean, the movie has a lot of problems. I don't know whose idea it was to make the movie sort of a philosophical debate and to have it climax with two old men fighting on a beach. I don't really, you know, these are sort I of the things I think we know that... whose idea that was. <laughs> I think we've all seen Brad Bird's movies. <laughs> but it, it really does weigh things down. I mean, you know, the thing about Tomorrowland, it was such a personal, like, Walt vision of the future. And what I've gathered from being the lone Tomorrowland obsessive out there is that they were going to use the Tomorrowland title as sort of an umbrella to tell stories within that land. And so subsequent films, had the movie actually made any money, would have been exploring different parts of what makes Tomorrowland so great. So it would have been sort of an anthology series. Um, and People a great... Mover, the movie. Yes. Yeah. People, I, if you gave me People Mover the movie... <laughs> I would be thrilled because it's yeah. the best ride. It's the best ride in the entire <laughs> park. <part. laughs> and there are great, you know, sort of iterations of Tomorrowland too that you could go into. The, the Tomorrowland of 1994 and 1995 had this great sort of like intergalactic convention center motif and pulled a lot of elements from, from past Tomorrowlands. And, you know, the Tomorrowland in Disneyland Paris, which is called Discoveryland, is like a retro future kind of Jules Verne thing. And so, I mean, you could have pulled a lot of that stuff into it, but... Instead, they decided to make it a road trip movie where two of the three characters know exactly what's going on and refuse to tell the third character. So I think that I understand why people are frustrated with Tomorrowland. But I, I think it's a beautiful movie. It's sort of very hopeful and spirited. And but yeah, that's it's. I understand. I understand the complaints against Tomorrowland, and I think that there's a reason that you know we haven't seen another Disney Parks based movie since 2015 until. Jungle Cruise. 
Yeah, you know, it, I just I feel like with Tomorrowland, like there was opportunity there, but then again, like you go into the Tomorrowland Park, and some of those rides are just very like the fact that Carousel of Progress still exists <laughs> kind of blows I my love mind. Carousel of Progress. Carousel of Progress is good if you need like twenty minutes of air conditioning, right? But, the catch is you get to like see like sort of the patriarchy. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> how much this guy hates his wife. Like how much this guy just lazes about while everyone around him works their asses off. And he's like, I love the future. <laughs> they actually shot some footage for Tomorrowland in Carousel of Progress. It didn't make it into the final movie, but you can see some of it on the, the deleted scenes. But uh, yeah. Interesting. Well, and it all, I, I do remember when Pirates of the Caribbean first came out, it was just like a laughing stock. Like I was in, I think I was in early high school, maybe, but it was just kind of like, what? Like, why did they make a movie based on this ride? And then it shocked everybody because it was so good. Yeah. And I feel like they've been trying to chase that ever since, not understanding that the reason that movie is good is because Gore Verbinski made a Gore Verbinski movie as opposed to making a Disney ride movie. Right. And, he, and you can see even in the marketing of that first movie how the first teaser was a shot from the ride, the skeleton on the with the, you know, wheel. And then as it got closer, you know, there's a great anecdote in Disney War, which is James Stewart's great book about the kind of Eisner era uh, where he got super cold feet about it being so closely attached to the ride. So he he put that Curse of the Black Pearl subtitle on it, even though the curse has nothing to do with the Black Pearl, really. Um, so, yeah, it's it's interesting. I wonder if if now people are... Because I think that, that Jungle Cruise is going to really lean into the attraction in a lot of ways, and I wonder if people are more into that. Because the, the initial batch did kind of separate itself from the attractions. Even the Country Bear movie, which I watched again, you know, there are some references to it, but like the main bears aren't even the bears from the show. So, you know, I'm imagining someone in the audience being like, this is bullshit. I showed up for the main bears. What the fuck? <laughs> that was me on my couch last week. <laughs> These are not the bears I paid for. Where's Simmerlips? That was me. Yeah. Well, I imagine, I do wonder if when Jungle Cruise comes out next summer, Disney will use it as this opportunity to, God willing, uh, you know, if the pandemic has has subsided by then, as like a big, like, come back to the parks. Like, go and yeah. enjoy Jungle Cruise and come back to the parks and it's all, you know, because they're struggling right now. Yeah, bit. I mean, I think that's part of the reason why it was bumped was that they had big plans for in-park stuff. Um, not that all those plans turn out you know, to be the, the case, as we've seen with the kind of like lackluster Galaxy's Edge stuff that's come out. But they really wanted to get that synergy behind the parks. I think they were they were looking to redo some aspects of the ride as well. Um, so, you know, in the, in the same way that, that the Johnny Depp character is now in Pirates of the Caribbean, that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I could see that happening. Um there's a lot of merchandise already in the, in Disney World, the only op, you know open uh, domestic theme park, and you know there's a big uh, Jungle Cruise presence in Japan, so I could see I could see that being something. They're gonna flip every switch, as they say. I'm sure. <laughs> is there is there a ride that you'd like, or attraction, or park that you think would would lend itself really well to a movie that we haven't that hasn't really been attempted yet? Yeah, I mean I. I, I joked about it in the intro, but I would love to see an extra terror estrial alien encounter attraction. I think that would be really cool. Um, and I think that there could be a way of recycling 
proposed rides or lands or things for movies you know the beastly kingdom was going to always be something that was going to be a part of animal kingdom and it was never built but they have this amazing story about you know uh fantasy creatures and there's there was this ride where dragons were pitted against bats and it was like well let's like do that as a movie you know why why waste that kind of kind of thing but you know, the, the the thing that I think is interesting is that there isn't really any original IP going into the parks anymore. So there's going to be less to draw from for these movies or TV shows or Disney Plus originals or whatever they're going to be. So that, I think, would be, you know, that should be an imperative, uh, you know, thing on the agenda. But I, I don't think it is right now. But at some point, someone's going to say, oh, we ran out of Disney Parks rides to adapt. So we should probably do something about that. <laughs> Splash Mountain. Splash Mountain. <laughs> Everyone was on vacation. This was never anything other than a, than a princess. There never was a Splash Mountain. It was always, always Tatiana's wild ride. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, let's with that. Let's uh, move into to DC fandom. Uh, for those who are, thank you, Adam. <laughs> for those who are listening, Adam brought up his inception background on Skype. Um, so b- for, before we continue, uh, some of you were like, didn't, wasn't you, are you guys going to talk about cloud Atlas? Wasn't, why did, wasn't that going to happen? That will still happen. We'll record that later this week, but we figured we should probably talk about DC fandom now because it was a big deal this weekend. And so to start off with, um, I personally am not a huge fan of like fan conventions. I'm not just, the the nature of them i just kind of rubs me the wrong way but i can still like say like one is better than the other and after having done within the span of a month we had a month ago we had uh san diego comic-con at home and now we just had dc fandom and i think dc fandom ran a whole lot better and accomplished what it set out to do which is you know raise the profile of these upcoming dc properties in a way that if you wanted to watch the, the live broadcast, you could and like be a part of it and that was fine. Or if you didn't want to, they like, okay, here's just the trailer. The trailer is out now and like you can watch the trailer. And I think that sort of struck a nice balance between like, you have to be here, you have to watch it live or else you'll never see it again. And just like going with the flow and just saying like, no, no, okay, here's your first look at the Snyder Cut. Here's your first look at the Batman. Here's your first look at the Suicide Squad. And just like making it kind of, I think just streamlined and I thought it it went off. I think it went well as, as a production. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were all, we were, we all suffered through Comic-Con and DC fandom together. And I didn't, I still don't know what Comic-Con was this year. I mean, it seemed like an absolute mess and there was no news out of it either. Like at least this had things that you could write about or share on social media or whatever. But yeah, I, I thought it was pretty fun. I mean, it flew by sitting there for eight hours watching people in a (laughs) weird green screen room. (laughs) It was streamlined. And I mean, ultimately, uh, we've talked about this before. Like, you can go to conventions for different reasons. And I totally understand people who pay to go to San Diego Comic-Con just because they want to experience it and hear people talk and stuff. But ultimately, at the heart of um, what these conventions are is it's marketing. It's it's selling you on things that are coming up or that you're already a fan of and getting you to can you continue to be interested in or pay money for merchandise or whatever else is going on. 
Um, San Diego Comic-Con, I think, understandably, a lot of studios just didn't want to bring anything because I don't know what things are going to look like. DC Fandom, is, since it's entirely Warner Brothers-based, they can control exactly what they want to do. Um, and while I like the idea that, like, at San Diego Comic-Con, like, we hosted an anniversary panel for Constantine, like, that was a really interesting conversation about a film that went a little deeper. It doesn't feel like that's what people are going to conventions for. Like, I mean... Both of you have been to San Diego Comic-Con and, you know, Matt and I have talked about sitting in the room with Francis Ford Coppola, like one of the greatest directors he's ever lived. And the room is like a third full. Like people just are not interested in in whatever he has to say or or kind of that uh, in-depth discussion. Um, so like DC Phantom just cuts to the chase and it's like, you want the Batman, you want Suicide Squad, here are trailers, here's people having fun. And just from a pure production standpoint, I think it ran super smoothly. Like it, everything kind of flowed right into the next thing. There was no hiccup. The kind of virtual, the way they brought the people into the fandom, I think worked really well. Um, obviously they weren't in the same room, but I, I think they pulled it off in a way that felt organic. It didn't feel stifled or anything. Um, and then they broke a ton of news. Like the stuff kind of got out and, and reached out beyond uh, just the people who were watching. Yeah, I also feel like, you know, it's it definitely lays the groundwork for if you're going to have like if this is sort of a test run for Warner Brothers doing its own version of like D23, then this is sort of a good kind of first step for them being like, okay, when thing when life returns to normal, there will be um, you know, we will have a physical convention of just DC stuff and like it seems like yeah, that's that's a workable solution for them. Yeah, it almost makes it seem like uh, Star Wars Celebration could have been pulled off in a similar way this year. I mean, they don't have as many actual assets because so much isn't shooting or has postponed shooting or whatever. But uh, it really felt like they could have done something like this and it would have been just as well received. Yeah, I, I feel like yeah, this as a as a you know convention like this this went pretty well. Um, I guess we should start kind of going through what was shown. I mean, they showed new stuff from Wonder Woman, which is fine. It's weird for me to see anything from Wonder Woman right now because it feels like this. I mean, the film was supposed to come out in June, so it's and it's like, will it come out in October? Who knows? You know, we'll see. Um, and then uh, so we got that. And then what was next? Was it the Flash? Was next? Or the suicide, the Flash. We got like a little bit of information, and the bit like yeah. that was basically confirming that it's going to be like Flashpoint, and he's going to team up with Batman. And it's very much like it kind of it tickles me that there's this sort of fake like oh DC versus Marvel, and it's like no, they just take ideas from each other. Like you had like oh, do you see the Spider Man Iron Man relationship? Well, that's what we're going to be the Flash and Batman. Like it's going to be <laughs> this older superhero mentors a younger superhero and like teaches him how to be a hero and like gives him a new suit. Like it's it's and that's fine. Like I'm not like how dare you steal from Marvel. It's just studios look at other studios to see like what was successful. Like they they're all about mitigating risk. And if something was successful elsewhere, they will copy it. So, um, but I thought Flash <laughs> looked fine. The Flash is interesting because it's been in the works for so long and has gone through so many different directors and writers. And yet, like from what they said, it feels like one of their most important movies right now and that it's going to introduce the idea of the multiverse. So it will kind of make sense of the fact that there is like a disparate Joker movie that doesn't take place in the same universe as Batman versus Superman. I mean, clearly, like after 
Justice League, Warner Brothers decided to like, you know, not everything has to be connected anymore because there were plans initially to have it be exactly like Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, so it does feel like the Flash is going to kind of rectify that by saying like, no, 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 all these things can exist and it's a multiverse. And how about that? Like, does that work? Go for it. Um, it's just funny that it's taken so long for it to come around that maybe initially it was going to be more tied into um, kind of the Zack Snyder movies than it will be now. Well, I mean, they're they're ditching. But, they're, oh, go ahead, Drew. No, but Ben Affleck's going to be there still. So we got that. I know, but it's, it's like connecting it, like pulling everything together and explaining how they all exist in like the same multiverse. And they're, I mean, the DC fact multiverse, baby. <laughs> well, the fact that they're like getting rid of the Flash's costume already says to me, like, we're done with the Snyder stuff because, like, it's not like that costume, the Flash's costume, like, it has Zack Snyder explained, like, no, no, like, if these plates are here to like control the static, like, it's it's completely overthought and overworked. And so they're like, let's just get rid of that. And now, like, let's not worry about is it realistic? Like, that's sort of no longer our mandate to sort of be like, is this a realistic thing? Is this kind of working? And so just to kind of redo it and to to kind of, you know, put it in a new framework. And I think that will that will be fine. I don't know if it will be successful. I'm willing to give it a shot. <laughs> um but uh, we'll see how it all turns out. Drew has fallen into the multiverse. He will never return. R.I.P. Drew. <laughs> <laughs> you all can right. still read his articles on Collect. You can still read his article, which is great. But uh, it'll just be Adam and me now talking DC fandom. So to move on with that, uh, then we had the Suicide Squad. And I was like already kind of interested because of James Gunn's involvement. And then we got to see sort of the behind the scenes tease and the sort of the roll call for the cast. And... It looked like I know I should be like fool me once, but like I don't know. It feels like a better sensibility. Also, it feels like James Gunn will get to do what James Gunn wants to do. Whereas, whatever happened with David Ayer's Suicide Squad was clearly not the movie he intended. And I'm not going to be like hashtag release the Ayer cut. I'm just saying if you like look at that Comic Con sizzle reel, it's very different than what the film turned out to be, which was something clearly refat. Like someone at Warner Brothers was like make it more like Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, it's a team of misfits, make it more like Guardians of the Galaxy. And so, like, the Suicide Squad movie is just, like, that we got in 2016 was very weird um, and not that good and kind of confused. Whereas it feels like James Gunn has a very clear handle on what he wants his Suicide Squad movie to be. Yeah, and I don't know, it feels like there's definitely a super vibe from his movie Super. Um, I cannot imagine, they haven't confirmed yet, but I can't imagine this won't be rated R given what they talked about in the behind the scenes video. They were talking about like limbs being blown off and heads being blown off. Um, it feels like, you know, when James Gunn made guardians, of the galaxy, he like by making a PG 13 Disney movie, essentially he was forced to kind of lean onto, uh, the emotional, like emotional storytelling, which I think was good for him as a filmmaker. And so I'm excited to see him maybe combine that with an R rated, uh, you know, kind of more edgy sensibility with the suicide squad. Cause it looks like he's just having fun and like, you know, killing characters left and right. Um, just like Buku's a mayhem. I like the idea that it's like a seventies gritty war movie, but it, it, like when they say that with James Gunn involved, I don't, it doesn't tell me that like James Gunn is trying to make a seventies gritty war movie. It just tells me that that's maybe a fl one of the many flavors uh, yeah, it, you know, in this thing. It probably has a, has a nice infusion of like the dirty dozen, something yeah. like that. 
yeah, even looking at the logo and the title treatment, like that's clearly an influence on it. Kind of those 70s. Um, not uh, it, it's not trying to be like the French connection or anything. Uh, I think it's going to have that that fun sensibility. And I'm excited. I don't know. It looked really good from what I saw. Yeah, no, I thought it looked solid, um, and I'm 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 interested to see how it turns out. And like, we can all kind of just sort of be happy with it because I was like, you know, oh, but it's you know, it's a shame that James Gunn won't get to finish his little Guardians trilogy, but now he will. So we all yeah. get we all get what we want. <laughs> yeah. To briefly recap, when James Gunn was like dumbly fired from Disney for the resurfacing of old bad tweets from a long time ago that he now says, like, I'm more mature and I would never tweet anything like that. Now, in the very brief uh, point in time between when he was fired and rehired by Disney, Warner Brothers was like, what do you want to make? Like, you can do whatever you want. And he chose Suicide Squad. All right. Now let's get into the stuff that's going to have a bit slightly longer conversation. So we got the first official trailer for the Snyder Cut of Justice League. And, you know, I'm sure someone will. Uh, you know, actually, no one will cut out this clip because no one fucking watches, but <laughs> no one watches this shit on YouTube. I mean, if you're watching right now, awesome. Thank you. But someone's going to cut it out and be like, look at this fucking asshole ragging on Snyder. Um, but I'm I'm annoyed with it. I'm annoyed that, you know, you have it was announced it's going to be like a four. It's going to be a four hour miniseries. Each episode will be one hour. And it's just like that's to me there. There's a consistent dishonesty with the Snyder cut that runs throughout its production in terms of like why Zack Snyder left and like why the film turned out the way it did and who's to blame for the theatrical cut. And now like why we brought it back. Like there's just no, like just say like we want money and we found a way to basically just polish an assembly cut because when, so to travel back in time to 2016, um, Batman v Superman has just opened. It has it is doing poorly. It is under is coming in under expectations at the box office, and the critical response has been negative. Warner Brothers kind of panics, and they're because they're already filming Justice League, and so what they do is they invite a ton of journalists, like twenty or thirty journalists, to the set of Justice League to be like, no, no, it's going to be fine. No, like look at this, it's going to be okay. You can run these set visits right now. You don't have to wait till like the film is about to open. We want to like let people know that Justice League is going to be okay. And at no point in that does Zack Snyder say, yeah, I'm going to make a four-hour movie. Because of course he wasn't going to make a four-hour <laughs> movie because no studio is going to release a four-hour movie. And so this notion that like, this is my original vision, but it doesn't have to be edited is not how filmmaking is done. And it just feels like, you know, Warner Brothers and Zack Snyder are exploiting their own fans to say like, oh, well, these guys will sign up for HBO Max to watch this. And what's more is I can make sure that they sign up and stay tuned for four weeks because we're going to air it as a miniseries and they just have to stay tuned for what will essentially be an assembly cut of Zack Snyder's movie. Like there will be no, edits, yeah. there, will be no pro, there will be no notes process. There will be no like creative endeavor. It'll just be like Zack Snyder. Like this is what he came up with at the end of production. And let's just finish the VFX and call it a movie and call it a miniseries or a movie. And it just, it grates on me. Yeah. Cause I mean, to be clear, like Zack Snyder isn't, doesn't get to do reshoots. And when he left the production of justice league, he had only done principal photography. And for every major movie nowadays, there's reshoots and those reshoots are good. Like they are a tool for a filmmaker to add, to refine as they get into the editing room. They're like, Oh, you know what? I think I need to get in here to do this. Or, you know what? I lost this 
part of the movie, so I need to connect these two plot lines, so I need to write a new scene to put in here. He never got to do any of that, and by all reports, the actors are not coming back to film any new scenes. So the Snyder Cut is, is just made up of footage that he had shot during that principal photography, but had not refinely edited. He had only ever turned in an assembly cut when he left. Um, and an assembly cut is an unrefined version of a movie, so... Yeah, it feels like, in and to be fair, like he's being given a budget to finish visual effects and to create new elements using visual effects. Like he's replacing, or not replacing, maybe it was supposed to be Darkseid the whole time, but like Darkseid is now in the movie. So that's an a entirely visual effects element that he can put in there um, that maybe was probably part of his original vision. But yeah, to say this four-hour version is the Snyder Cut, is the cut that would have been released in theaters, is disingenuous because there's no way Warner Brothers would have allowed a four hour cut of justice league to be released in theaters. So yeah. And to do it as like a mini series, that's a weird thing. It just feels like he's like, all right, all right well, I can just do, and we know that Zack Snyder is fond of director's cuts. Cause there's a director's cut of, um, sucker punch. I think director's cut of Watchmen, which I think is a better version of Watchmen, to be honest. Um, and they're very, very long, but this is akin to like Peter Jackson releasing the extended edition of return of the King and saying like, this is my unedited vision. Cause even Peter Jackson now says, like and has always contended that the extended editions are not necessarily better than the theatrical cuts of the movies. He said he still feels that the theatrical cuts of the Lord of the Rings films are like his director's cuts, those are his versions. And the extended editions are like if you just want some more stuff. So this just feels like kind of like an overstuffed and obviously we're talking about it without seeing it, just like an overstuffed like, well here's everything I got to shoot and and I finished all the visual effects for all of it. Um that doesn't necessarily make it any better. You're getting all the exactly. Like that's not how movies are made. And the thing that gets under my skin are there are people out there, and I won't name them, but they're like, I'm going to tell, like, like they're sort of cashing in and exploiting the fans who don't know any better and who just want the new thing. They're like, no, no, I'm going to help sell this as if it's a real movie. But I know, like, when these people know how movies are made, like, they know the truth. But there's something to like. There's a movement to to exploit, and so they're going to kind of cash in on that. And I feel like everyone's kind of doing that. Like you have this demand from this fan base that genuinely like they're like, well, I didn't like Justice League, but I hear there's a better version of Justice. There could be a better version of Justice League from a director I like. And I feel like ev- like this like on some level, like Warner Brothers is exploiting these people. I feel like there's sort of like a nerd culture. Um, certain websites are are kind of exploiting these people. And it's like, at some point, I feel like we would all be be better served being like, just tell us the truth of how this was made. Because I think that's a more interesting story than Zack Snyder made an assembly cut and we we finished the visual effects. Yeah, and I've always, through this whole process, I've always said, like, I would rather see Zack Snyder's version of this movie than, like, a cobbled together. Because even the theatrical cut that Joss Whedon oversaw reshoots for, that's not Joss Whedon's movie. He didn't get to sign off on it. He didn't he didn't take a director credit, and he did not get final say on, like, what the finished version of that was. That was very much a studio, like, trying to create, like, eh, maybe Yeah, the version you be... saw in 2017 has no director, essentially. Yeah, there's no author, essentially. And so I've always said, like, I would rather see the unfiltered version from the single artist for better and worse than, like, the neutered version. So I am still curious to see the Snyder Cut. I'm curious what, like, what was his original plan? What does it look like? It could be worse than the theatrical cut. Probably won't be. Um, but it could be. But yeah, to, to I don't know, the miniseries thing, I was like, eh. I don't know. Like this, then don't call it the Snyder cut. 
call it something else because this was not this four hour version was not just sitting in a vault ready to be released. Otherwise, it be, would have been released this year because with the pandemic and with Warner Brothers having pull to pull movies out of theaters, they would have needed content. That would have been a really easy fix. So, yeah, you can hear my dog barking in the background. Jack <laughs> Zach was saying hashtag release the cider. Cup. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I feel like there's just again, there's sort of a misconception about what this what this cut even is and people are kind of using that misconception to you know essentially i don't want to say a bait and switch but kind of manipulate the fans into craving something that i don't think is is really what they think it is it's not like a finished like alternate cut that is very that is good and you know it's and this is what that they that they were somehow denied that like Wonder Brothers saw it and like, no, the world isn't ready for this. And like yeah. put it in and then hired Joss Whedon to like ruin it. or something. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and then finally I would say like, and then like the, the other big thing on the, the day was the Batman. Um, Which looks great. Yeah. I, I hate that. It looks so good. I hate that. It looks so good. And I'll tell you why, because on the one hand, like it's like it looks gritty and dark, and like yeah, that's every Batman. But damn it, it still looks. I, I got to give Matt Reeves credit, you know. I gotta say, like he's putting together something that like looks like he's making it his own, which is tougher and tougher with each new Batman iteration. Um, I don't know if it's all going to come together, but like it looks very. It has like a clear concept of what it wants to be. Um, that doesn't look like previous Batman films. Yeah, as soon as that Nirvana strum came in, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, no, this is going to be good. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think what excites me about the Batman and, and God knows we don't need another Batman movie is not only the footage, which look great. Um, and I want to talk about something specific in the footage in a minute. But everything Matt Reeves said in the panel is something that we haven't seen before. So the construction of this film is a mystery. Is Batman detecting and trying to solve a series of crimes? It appears as though those crimes are being done by the Riddler. So there's a single plot through line that he's trying to solve something throughout the entirety of the film. That's not really something we've seen before. We've seen, you know, Batman's trying to figure out certain things, but there it's always kind of like, by the end of the first act, there are clear battle lines drawn between the hero and the villain, and then they go off and do separate things. So it sounds like there is one clear through line. And through that through line, Batman will come into contact with Catwoman and Penguin and these other characters, but they will be in support of that story. So it's all in. So it sounds like it's all in support of story, a single story, as opposed to like, well, we want Catwoman in the movie. So let's come up with a subplot to involve Catwoman. No, Catwoman will be involved in the main story. Like she, he encounters her and as he's trying to solve this crime. Um, And then this year two idea of Batman, we don't have to go through the origins again, but he's not kind of the older grizzled Batman that we saw in Batman versus Superman, which I thought was interesting because that was not a version of Batman we had seen before. Um, But the, and then like the Batman and Batman versus Superman and justice league though, was like so tech based. And so um, I don't know. There was something about it that just didn't. And I thought Ben Affleck did a good job. But um, this Batman seems. In short, it seems like he's living in the world of David Fincher's seven. And like that excites me <laughs> like that. That's that's an intriguing thing. Um, and then just in terms of the visuals, I mean, Greg Fraser shot this. He's an incredible cinematographer. But there's that one fight scene that we see in the trailer that everyone's freaking out over. Um, and it's great and it's impactful. But. 
I think it's impactful because it's playing out in a single shot. It's not, you know, who are you? And then it cuts to Batman's fist and his face and the other guy's face, like cut, 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 cut. It's just a single shot. And so it's him punching and punching and punching all plays out in one take. That, I think, speaks to Matt Reeves' directorial style, as we saw in the Planet of the Apes films, of his patience to kind of let scenes play out. And that way they can be a little bit more powerful as opposed to, you know, quick cutting and using editing to kind of hide um, your stunt double or, uh, you know, whatever else is going on. That's not to say every single fight scene in this movie is going to be done in like one long shot. But I just really love the idea that like, oh, this fight between Batman and this guy that lasts all of like 10 seconds is just one interrupted shot. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I thought it looked, you know, it looked terrific. And um, I thought Pattinson was selling it. Yeah. And I loved the Paul Dano voiceover as Riddler. I thought that was really good. Like, I think all the elements are here. uh, Well, that's fresh. Like, we haven't seen Riddler since Batman Forever. And so I think it's smart to, you know, he is the the main villain. That's a main villain we haven't seen in a very long time. Yeah. Um, I think that there's a lot you know, that can be done well here to sort of, and also the thing that, you know, is important to remember is that like, in terms of a live action Batman film, we haven't really had Batman be center stage since 2012, since the dark Knight rises. And even in that film, he's kind of pushed to the side. And even in the dark Knight, he's kind of pushed to the side. Like he, Batman kind of jockeys for central position in his own movies. You have to go all the way back to Batman begins to sort of say like this, he is the main character. Yeah. And so, I would feel like I feel like the Batman is kind of a good chance to sort of shine a light on him. Although, you know, if we want to get technical, I feel like the Lego Batman movie is a very good Batman movie (laughs) that, you know, if you're again, if also if you're looking for like, oh, why are all Batman movies so dark? Lego Batman movie exists and it's great. So. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that in a long time, but I was a little bothered by all the bevy of cameos in the third act. I felt like that one ceased to be a Batman movie just because it's like, oh, well, look, Harry Potter. It became it became it, it became definitely like a Warner Brothers movie again, like but IP I, everywhere. It became an IP thing, like even like when the Matrix agents are showing up, yeah, and they would never get like Lego would never make a Matrix set because the Matrix is rated R <laughs> and like involves guns, but like it doesn't matter. I would feel like like the Lego at least Lego Batman at least is like Batman is a fan like about a guy rebuilding his family. Like I think it still understands something essential about Batman that other stories have missed. Yeah, uh, but I'm curious to see what this one this one does. And I, I kind of love that October release date for it too. Like it's rainy and moody. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I'm they really... had a lot of success with that October release date with Joker. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So if if Joker is rated R and can make a billion dollars, your Batman movie in October should be fine. Yeah, that's true. Very true. Um. All right. Uh. Well, anything else to say about DC fandom, or should we move into recently watched? I thought it was successful. Good job. Yeah. Good job. And, um, you know, I, I get why it's on a Saturday, <laughs> but I'm yeah. not thrilled about none of us are thrilled about having to work on a Saturday. Maybe make yeah. it a Friday. Yeah. Um, all right. Moving on. Uh, what have you seen lately that you want to talk about? So I watched Artemis Fowl. <laughs> Yay! I'm so excited. Talk to me about Artemis Fowl. And this was a couple of weeks ago, but I was waiting for the right moment to bring it up. And I wish Drew was still here because he's our Disney person. Um, but just a, a real what the fuck of a movie. <laughs> like, and it's, it, I don't know, it's very clear that it was reshot to hell and edited to hell. Like there are certain scenes, like there's ADR all over the place where 
um, you have like lines being added to either change the tone of the scene or add exposition or, you know, drill down something that was already pretty obvious. All of Colin Farrell's stuff is reshoots. He was not announced as being part of the cast until like they announced they released the first trailer um, because he was added in post-production, that whole thing. And I don't know how, I mean, it, my understanding is that the books are that he's like a young supervillain, but this movie does not portray him as a supervillain at all. He's just like a little whiz kid um, who like reluctantly helps out. I don't know why Judy Dench and Josh Gad are using the same voice. Doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> um, all of Josh Gad stuff also feels shoehorned in to try and reframe a new version of the movie. I mean, talk about release the Snyder cut, release the Branagh cut of Artemis Fowl. <laughs> Although I don't, I don't know that anyone really needs to. I just find it really it's a fascinating film uh, in that it it's just so nonsensical um, and weird and expensive. Like, it's not even like, you know, I don't know. It just feels like they kind of gave up on it at a certain point and they were like, eh, it is what it is. There you go. Yeah. And I can't help but wonder, like, at what point did they, you know, I mean, the pandemic, the pandemic gave them an opening to put it on Disney plus it was originally supposed to be released in theaters in August. And then they push it all the way back to May. So clearly last August they were like, this is not working and we need to like fix it, but we'll still release it in the theaters. If this had been like, you could not release this in the theaters. It's fucking trash. I mean, not that trash doesn't get released in the theaters, but like even as a Disney plus film, like I, I kind of get, I don't want to say I give Disney plus stuff a pass, but like when stuff is on streaming, I'm sort of like, well, it's a lower bar. You're already subscribed. So it's not like you're going out of your way to to get it. You're not paying extra money. Uh, although that case will be different when, when Mulan comes along. Yeah. But um, like Artemis Fowl is just there. But even that, on that level, like, well, if you already have Disney Plus, why not watch Artemis Fowl? Don't watch Artemis Fowl because it's, it's garbage. <laughs> I did. That's what I thought. I was like, well, I already had Disney Plus and it's Sunday afternoon and, uh, you know, nothing else to do. But I, halfway through, I was like, why did I do this? And I have to finish it. Like, I don't really turn stuff off. So, yeah, it's really freaking bad. Yeah. Um, And it's it's very different than what it was intended to be. Like, if you can go on YouTube right now and, like, watch the original trailer and you'll see a bunch of scenes that just aren't in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So um, for me, uh, my wife showed me this fun little new Netflix movie called Work It which is just a dance movie. It's a, it's a dance competition movie. My There's fiance this... really wants to see that. And I'm going to have to tell her that you guys watched it. And now we're going to have to watch it. You you'll, you'll thank us. Okay. You'll think it's, it's, it's a cute film. So the, like the Sabrina Carpenter plays this uh, girl. It's a, and first of all, the film's Canadian. And so one of my, something my wife picked up on that the Canadian filmmakers did not pick up on. She's like, she wants to really go to Duke. Because her dad, who has passed away, went to Duke and really loved it. And he's like, I remember watching football games with my dad. And it's like, no, it's basketball. <laughs> now, I know you're Canadian, but it's basketball. Um, but so her dream is going to Duke. She kind of lies to the admissions officer, saying that she's part of the, her school's popular dance troupe. Um, then the dance troupe won't let her in. And so she decides to form her own dance troupe and compete at the Work It competition. And that's basically it. And then, like, she, like, learns to, like, loosen up and, like, you know, not be so focused on her studies and feel the beat of the music. And it's fine. It's just it's very cute. It's very lighthearted. Um, Jordan Fisher, who was in the recent All the Boys movie, he plays the choreographer and the love interest. And he's so dreamy. And (laughs) it's just um, Kenyon Lonsdale, who was in Love, Simon. uh, He plays the antagonist and he's very funny. Uh, it's just a good cast. It's it's very charming. Uh, again, it's it's perfect for what Netflix is. Like, here is a 90-minute romantic comedy dance movie. 
and that's it. And it's like good, good distraction, good for a Friday night. You know, take me away. And I think that's I. You know, I have no beef with that. And I, I feel like it's a it's a perfectly serviceable movie. Like it's just it's enjoyable for what it is, especially being on Netflix. Sounds fun. Yeah, you'll enjoy it. I think you'll enjoy it. Cool. Um, so yeah. Uh, well, thank you all so much for listening. Um, Drew dropped out, but you can follow him on Twitter at Drew Tailored, like a tailored suit. Uh, Adam, where can people find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be with you later this week when we dive into Cloud Atlas, which is currently streaming on Netflix. We'll get back to your music shortly, but first, did you know that prescription prices are different at different pharmacies? You could literally drive across the street and get a different price. That's crazy. But with GoodRx, you can instantly compare prices at every pharmacy in your neighborhood and save up to 80%. You're probably thinking there's a catch, right? Nope. It's 100% free and can save you money whether you have insurance or not. In fact, it can often beat your copay. Download the GoodRx app today and start saving. GoodRx is not insurance. The Medicare annual election period deadline is almost here. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who started their search for coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online, so he started at MyHealthPolicy.com. I took my time and found the coverage I was looking for, and done. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plans, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com and done switch to a better plan and michael i met with a local licensed insurance agent face to face and done go to myhealthpolicy.com to compare top rated medicare advantage plans in your area including zero dollar premium plans or call 1-800-GO-START that's 1-800-GO-START meredith Vieira is a paid endorser kf agency operates myhealthpolicy.com not connected with or endorsed by the u.s government or the federal medicare program a licensed insurance agent may call